I think it's a natural go-to for early projects to make GLP material, maybe some early phase one material for all the obvious reasons. I think China in particular is known for being very quick at being able to produce that kind of material and also significantly cheaper most of the time compared to maybe U.S. counterparts or European counterparts. So I think it's kind of a natural go-to for the first step, first stages of uh, any clinical program. Welcome to CMC Live. This is the show where we discuss CMC regulations and guidances simplified through real-life experiences and risk-based advice. Each episode, we speak with subject matter experts as well as other leading industry authorities. With your host, Ed Narkey. Hey guys, it's Ed Narkey. Welcome to CMC Live. I'm here to play another round of What Are Your Thoughts with my co-host Miranda and Brian, as always. All right, guys. All right, we're going to get right into it. So let's see what's going on this week. So again, we talked about this in a prior episode for the drug product. Trust is an important relationship, uh, picking CMOs, particularly offshoring. So outsourcing becomes you know, really important these days. It always has been, but even more so. And effectively managing and, and, and taking care of this is an important topic. So today we have Dave Blasingham on the show. Dave's process chemist by training and has worked at uh, the likes of Gilead, Biomarin, as well as many merging uh, biotechs on the West Coast and all over. So Dave, let's get into this episode, starting by going into some of your background, you know, how you got started, get some of your thoughts on contract manufacturing in Asia. Oh, I got my start at Gilead Sciences as a process chemist, and I think that was a fantastic place to be trained as to how to be a process chemist. I did that for a few years and moved into the chemical outsourcing group for API for their commercial uh, drugs. And that was uh, an, a very interesting window into manufacturing large quantities and lots of different organizations. And then from there, I've been basically focused on outsourced manufacturing ever since. Uh, and it's been all over the place, from the U.S. to Europe to uh, Asia. And uh, in one of the last stints, I spent almost a couple of years and quite a bit of time in Asia. So, Dave, we, we, we talked on an earlier podcast about it, what it's like to be person in plant and supporting a contract manufacturer. Um, however, you have the unique opportunity to spend large amounts of time in, in, in various locations within China and working closely with their technical teams to manufacture product. And, and I imagine there are some, some subtle differences between, say, Western Europe and U.S. manufacturers and working in Asia, aside from obvious cultural differences and language barriers. Can you maybe talk a little bit about you know, the allure and what drives people to manufacture uh, at sites in China? Sure. I think it's a natural go-to for early projects to make GLP material, maybe some early phase one material for all the obvious reasons. I think China in particular is known for being very quick at being able to produce that kind of material and also significantly cheaper most of the time compared to maybe U.S. counterparts or European counterparts. So I think it's kind of a natural go-to for the first step, first stages of uh, any clinical program. And that's certainly one of the reasons we were there uh, originally. <clears throat> We had projects that progressed a little bit further from there, and, and that doesn't always happen. That's kind of unique to every project. But I think, again, the allure is time and money for early phase programs where you maybe don't need to divest, invest a whole lot of time in development right off the bat because you really need to get talk studies underway and you need to get some understanding if you've got a program or not. So when, when you compare you know, apples to apples and looks at, at quotes, you're right. I mean, there, there's, there's some significant cost advantages to manufacturing in China. But I think one of the things um, if you could expand on is 
it's a little bit more than just the quote that you're presented. There are other challenges and costs associated with manufacturing in China that may not be very apparent when you see that initial quote. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit? Sure. I, I mean, one thing that's never captured in the quote, right, is, is one of the key activities for any oversight of manufacturing at any CMO is person and plant activities. And in China, you know, that's not going to be captured in, in, their, in a quote by any means uh, or a contract. Um, and it's, yet it's going to be a fairly significant amount because the travel to get there, uh, the amount of time that it takes and how long you would likely to stay, you're not flying there and back in the same day. You know, it's going to take you a day just to get there. Um, and so the travel can add up to be quite a bit, I think, on top of what's in the contract. It might be surprising sometimes just how much you would spend, you know, on a flight alone just to get there, especially with any kind of routine frequency. So for the larger manufacturers, I mean, you, you kind of, those of us in the West, we envision a certain environment when working in China. But, but for these larger manufacturers, they really are built to handle outside clients and, and, and cater to outside clients. What's the experience like? Now, you, you've touched down, you've gone to this site because you've been to many sites throughout the world. And, and clearly, there's some differences in China. What has been your, your take on it? You, you've, I mean, you spent much time there, formed relationships with individuals there, but, but what are the, the big differences? Well, I think you're going to see a wide variety of plants, both in size, but maybe also in condition. So there's lots of plants that are repurposed, lots of plants that change hands quite often. And they're you know, like a lot of CMOs trying to extract every dollar out of that investment and, and make the most of it. So you'll see a pretty wide range of nice, shiny new equipment that were just dropped in the week prior to you maybe being on site to equipment that's been around for 20, 30 years and has been repurposed through multiple organizations. And I think that was probably the most striking because they could be right next to each other uh, or they can be in the different cities as you're traveling around um, China. But it, you never quite knew when you showed up what exactly you were going to see. And it could either be a piece of equipment that was just installed that day um, or something that they got somewhere else uh, that had been used pretty heavily. Uh, and it's pretty noticeable right off the bat, right? It, you can spot it pretty quick. And it definitely reiterated or reinforced the fact that it's good to be on site and see these plants. Um, for all the usual reasons, you need to make those connections and those relationships. But more importantly, you really need to know what you're working with. And I did have some occasions where you, there was a plant, we had an address, we'd even seen the facility and made material to only go back to it maybe a week or two later, and it was no longer there. So it, it is something certainly to be aware of and stay on top of. Well, we had a podcast a while back where we had um, someone speak to the merits of being on site uh, for the CMO on behalf of the client. And, you know, I mean, I've done it, you've done it. In China, however, do you find as though there are particular advantages, disadvantages to being on site? Do they, do they see you as much of an outsider or are you really integrated into what's happening and exposed? Because it varies from, from place to place, even in the US and Western Europe, but largely in part, being a value-added on-site presence seems to help the process along. It seems to, to garner the attention that it needs. What's it like in China? I think that's a, a common thread probably with multiple CMOs, but maybe more important with the Asian CMOs that you might work with. So we were told very specifically with our project teams that us being on site as a person in plant gave them the leverage they needed to go within their organization and ask for resources, whether that was time to plant, maybe extra equipment or extra people to be on the project. And they couldn't do that unless you showed up physically on site. Uh, 
because <clears throat> being on site not only forced them and their upper management to be with you in the boardrooms or on the plant floor, um, but it meant that the project was important to you enough to be there, spend the time, spend the money to be there. And they could use that. The project teams actually asked us a lot to be there for that specific purpose. The other reason I thought it was important to be on site, what I, what I learned was yes doesn't always mean yes. And lots of conference calls or even boardroom meetings where we were all together, even face-to-face, -face, we would ask for something uh, and the answer would be yes. But what we found out later was either there was a miscommunication or a misunderstanding because of the language barrier, or it was an appeasement tactic, meaning they never had any intention of actually following through with the request, but they said yes, just so we could move on to the next topic. And so you wouldn't know that or you wouldn't be able to follow up unless you're on site. So person and plant was very, very important. Yeah, I've had a similar experience to that yes response. Um, I found out that they meant that they'd look into it and not meaning that, yes, yes, I will do that. It's like, yes, I understand and kind of move on from there. So I get it. So I, I, I know that there's, I mean, we talk about the challenges, but, but what about some of the advantages beyond price? To manufacture because there are there are companies that make real investments into China and it's not just drug substance there are drug product facilities they're testing labs you know there, there's really a vested interest in seeing manufacturing in China so what are some of the the real obvious things well I, I think the opportunity with the blank slate so with the dollars that we can invest there on top of the dollars that their government also hands out to companies that guarantees you know, jobs for their citizens. Uh, you have a blank slate to pretty much do whatever you want. You can build the facility how you would like to. You can run the facility how you would like to. I mean, there are lots of big name companies who own floors at each of these organizations because they've either put in the money or guaranteed the projects that would allow them to build it the way they want to build it and run them operationally how they would like to run them. So, and in essence, they, they truly become an extension of your own organization without having to make the larger investments anywhere else that would be required to get to the same degree of quality, maybe. I wanted to go back to the, the person and plant. Um, we talked about this with Dan, uh, Dan Torok, you know, just in general, person and plant and the white coat effect, you know, how he mentioned that if there's someone outside, the white coat effect does make a difference in U.S. facilities, European facilities. But I, I could see it, you know, having the same effect in, in China manufacturing wise. Um, any, any thoughts on that? Is there something else, the effect? Well, so there, there was definitely a white coat effect. I, I, I would say it, uh, it was also a little bit interesting, or yeah, maybe a little funny. You know, there'd be one or two of us from the, the teams, um, the, from the sponsor side, and yet there would be maybe eight to 10 of them. And there would, so there'd be 12 of us in white coats in a little hallway overwatching one or two operators right in their kilo lab or in the plant um, operating the, their equipment. Not that, that we were talking or communicating about the project, but because again, us being there forced them to reciprocate with, with oversight alongside us. So it was uh, you know, sometimes interesting. We could at least read the batch record. We may not be communicating in English, but we could at least see what they were doing and, and, uh, and what learn from that. One of the things when we talk to contract sites, and again, Western Europe and U.S. specifically, you know, we talk about the operators, the level of training in the operators. Are we going to have a team dedicated to our process that will understand our process? Or is it going to be first come, first serve? I mean, a lot of that 
gives you that comfort level that you, you're starting to develop some, some, some process knowledge within the CMOs so that they can handle things. Is it the same in China? I mean, typically, you know, you, you have a lead, either a process engineer or a, a lead operator that becomes your confidant and, and kind of ushers you through the process on that site. Is it like that as well? Yes, it knows. Found it to be maybe a little bit different, in particular in the European organizations. Uh, what we found, at least in our projects, there was a high term, uh, rate. So these guys are graduating hundreds of thousands of PhD. There's no shortage. So these guys were rotating through their organizations maybe every year, year and a half. So for the projects that we had, we probably ran through four different project managers in the span of a couple of years. So it was very difficult, I would say, to maintain that kind of consistency. And you also weren't quite sure the level of experience or expertise that you were going to get with these replacements. A lot of them tended to be new. And there's a hierarchy there that I think they're, they're pretty open about. So if you're from a big name company, you're going to get the best that they have to offer. And then the rest of it is a little bit less clear about their experience or their expertise. So you may be not getting the A-team unless you were from Big Pharma name, which meant that you were probably going to give them large amounts of dollars. So we found turnover to be um, pretty difficult, to be honest, for a couple of reasons. You know, one, you kind of lose that familiarity with your project, right? And number two, as a side effect of them trying to maintain security of the information, the other thing we found is that they, with the change in, in turnover to your, your project team, access to the information wasn't always granted to everybody. And so it was hard for everyone to kind of get up to date with where we were with the project and what we needed to get done. And some of that, I think, was intentional, and some of it was a byproduct of, of that security concern that they were trying to relay to you know, the Westerners that they were managing our IP and managing our, the security of our data. So the security concerns, like I said, led to sometimes a coordination issue. I did also have a project that spanned raw materials through API and through drug product. And while we were told, they, we were sold on the basis that they would manage all of that for us because they were one organization. What we found is that's not really true. You end up having to work your way in to coordinate for them across their sites because they just did not do that uh, for one reason or another. Either they didn't have access um, because they were new to the team or because they were disincentivized, frankly, maybe to do that kind of coordination. They were incentivized to do their, their job, but maybe not much more than that. What we found was that because there was a severe consequence to making a decision that was above your pay grade. The other thing that made coordinating projects a little difficult was everything had to be rung up to higher management, usually VPs and above, if you needed a decision to be made because the team was waiting for someone to tell them what to do. And they were very, very hesitant to make any decisions on their own without run, running it up the ladder. So yeah, managing projects was very difficult, both on the plant floor and outside. So I, my takeaway from that is, I mean, we started off by saying, you know, there obviously are cost advantages to manufacturing in China. And we have a lot of clients, a lot of people out there that consider that the way to go, independent of the current climate with COVID and everything else. But, and so, but if you really think about it, you better make sure you have an, an easy to manage process. You better make sure it's well identified, easily transferable. And you really do have to budget to have a presence on that floor. I mean, it, it just, all these things have to be factored into your decision to move to China rather than just that quote. Because it is cheaper in black and white on a contract, but the resources it would take from the sponsor side to make sure that that project is successful, right? As we know, it's never usually factored in, but it's significant 
it's not a small part because they're not an operation where you can just hand over, you know, on a piece of paper, your synthetic scheme and call it a day. That's just not how it's going to work over there. And you're absolutely right. You just touched on another issue that we had when we were there. We thought we had a commercial process, found out very quickly that we did not. But because we had quoted it with them, with their commercial team, uh, we found ourselves very much, very quickly misaligned with the skill set that we needed to work through the development side and to make it a commercial process. And I think that's the other thing that maybe I, I would speak on is that if you're looking for a commercial process that you might be able to take anywhere, I'm not necessarily sure that's the place that you would go. And certainly maybe not in your first place. I think you're going to get material that can be brunt forced, if you will, you know, chemistry wise to get you material at the end of the day, but it's not necessarily going to be scalable or commercially robust, right? For, for a process. I, again, I, they're, emphasis is on speed and on cost. And they are okay with making multiple batches to get you the amount of material that you need rather than making the most efficient process. Their, their focus is not on efficiency. It's on speed and cost. So there's no way around it. I, it's, it's the political uh, question here. And I think you guys kind of touched on it though. China RX, right? And I've heard this since I've been in the business, you know, the risks of um, our dependence, America's dependence on, on medicines from China. We kind of heard about it in last year tariffs and those type of things like that. So being on that front, um, you know, can you give us maybe, and you mentioned a few, can you give us like two facts that are true and then two myths that, you know, aren't true to kind of segment those two or give us more, but, you know, maybe help the audience understand, you know, we've all heard a few things. What's, what are some facts and what are some myths? What are some facts that we've heard um, or some myths? We hear that not all APIs come from China in the pharmaceutical industry, right? I would actually say that's kind of a myth because what that's glossing over is the fact that almost all starting materials do. So while it's maybe true that not all APIs do, they all source back, mo not all, but most, source back into China. The, um, the one interesting fact that I learned with my operations there was that they actually sometimes source themselves from India, when in fact we always assumed that they were manufacturing everything internal into China. That is their preference, but when they can't do it, for one reason or another, they will outsource it to somebody like India um, to meet their needs. But the um, actually leads me to the second fact that you wanted to. Uh, the fact is that they do put China's interest above all else. So if they can manufacture it or can show that they can build the plant to make it happen, they will do so uh, because it's in their best interest to do that. Um, they are very reluctant to have to rely on anybody externally themselves. Um, and so they'll make sure that uh, they can find a solution to be solely reliant internally for, for those kinds of pharmaceutical projects. Second myth, I don't know. <laughs> okay, and are there, yep, there. <laughs> Is, uh, does Brian have any myths that he's heard that no, we can I mean, validate I think here? That should be told, you know, the stuff that we're covering, I think is is really insightful because, you know, again, you, you think of, of, China and you know growing in leaps and bounds, but but what quality is behind it? And I don't think that's a fair, I don't think that's a fair assessment to make. I think the fact that there are good reputable GMP firms in China, they do good work, but there's there's obvious cultural challenges. And and I think your decision to go to China really has to take into account the process you're trying to send over there. Because I do think, and Dave, you tell me what you think here, but I do think that there has to be a fit for manufacturing in China. It's not just, I have a process, go, go there. 
I mean, it has to be something that is, is solid to transfer, that's well characterized. You have to try to answer those questions before you transfer it. You know, you want to try to get in front of that because I would imagine, Dave, when you do have an issue, there's a lot of back and forth and translation that has to happen to work through that resolution. Let's, I mean, you're doing GMP material. So you run into a, a GMP issue, an investigation or an OOS. How is that conducted? I mean, I, I know sites from my experience, some sites in the US or Western Europe are notorious for, for writing the bare minimum of an investigation in hopes that you're going to add your piece to it. And then for some metamorphosis, you come away with a good, solid investigation. How is it with China? Because that I don't have experience with. Well, honestly, not that much different. I think they are very much looking for the sponsor to provide input as to how the investigation should be run and how it should be written. And they're, for the most part, I think, amenable to that input, and they will gladly take it and I think incorporate it. I think what you can't do as a sponsor is sit back and hope that they're going to figure out the root cause or even the, the kappa necessarily to a potential investigation. We, we ran into that multiple times. And to your point about communication, the translation became so onerous on our side that we in fact hired a, a Chinese speaking person to help us with not just our face-to-face -face conversations, but in the documentation side as well, because there was differences quite frankly between the English translations we were given or being verbally told versus what we were hearing you know, when they were speaking amongst themselves or written on paper. So we found it actually, it paid for itself in having somebody on staff who could speak the language because the communication style and the communication was very different than when we didn't have one. It was much harder for us to just rely on a translation services, which you can do at its own cost, but more importantly, its own timeline, right? That's that's much slower way of going about business, especially when you're on the floor in a manufacturing campaign and you come across a deviation. Last thing you really want to do is wait for a translation service to understand what's going on. Now, when you when you're going about selecting that site, I mean, did you ask to see examples of of GMP records or get a flavor of, or was there prior experience with the firm you were with and uh, and and that particular Chinese site, or did you were you involved in the vetting of the site? Uh, yeah, and so there was no previous experience with them. The I think the reason they were selected was because, quite frankly, they were the largest CMO in China uh, at the time and and still are to this day. So I think that gave folks some confidence that, you know, all the people that we could work with in China, they would probably be the best because they would have the most services. They could provide the most solutions to any of the the problems or, or project needs that we had. So for that basis alone, they they were selected. Okay. Okay, understood. So I, I think there's been heavy influences from the, the U.S. and from Europe, quite frankly, and in particular to their their regulations. So the Chinese FDA has very much tried to take the playbook by, from the FDA and the EMA and install those similar guidances and practices uh, within China. And I think that's a big deviation, you know, just the last five years or so uh, compared to say 10, 15 years ago where it was more of the Wild West kind of frontier style of manufacturing to get projects into the country. Now they're much more focused on making high quality APIs, not just for early phase. They really want commercial drugs as well. And they want to be able to control them internally for their own citizens. So there's been a large push by the government in just the last five years, I'd say, to significantly ramp up their, their requirements to be much more like the U.S., so I think in that regard, that, that's a step in clearly the right direction for certainly later stage drugs.
So um, Dave, you spoke a lot about drug substance manufacturing. At what point would you consider transferring out or the benefits of staying within the same company from drug substance to drug products within China. So Dave, you mentioned that you've been to multiple different sites in China, whether it be drug substance or drug product. And I was wondering if there's a benefit to staying at the same manufacturer from your drug substance to your drug product. We were hoping to realize that ourselves with the couple of projects that we had there, because we thought sticking with the one organization you're given a project team, a project coordinator, you know, and all the SMEs from the various functions. So we thought they'd be able to help us kind of integrate and coordinate amongst themselves the manufacturing schedules, the shipments of, of raw materials or API for the drug product manufacturing and the like. And what we found was kind of the opposite, quite frankly. Each unique function and, and certainly unique building within each city was just an independent organization. And that was, I think, a reflection of how the, the CMO that we were working with came to be as large and as well-known as they were. Because what they did was actually acquire multiple organizations, but you know, gave them the same title, the same company name. So in fact, they were different organizations that only shared the name of the parent company and still very much operated in independent silos. So to your point, we were hoping to rely on them a whole lot more for integration and coordination among the different um, sites that we were using. And what we found was the opposite. We had to do that for them. Again, it falls back on the resources at the sponsor site. So when you are maybe a smaller organization and you really are relying on your external partners, um, that, that is a consideration to make because you, you just don't have enough resources internally sometimes to compensate for what you may not be getting from, from these vendors. To kind of bring, bring it back, I mean, I, I think it's important that, you know, we, we understand, you know, some of the challenges, but just as importantly, you know, some of the positives to going there. And I think as you laid it out, I mean, there really are benefits and challenges to these scenarios. But to me, knowing what you know, having been at the sites that you've been in for as long as you've been in, would you say that not necessarily every program is a fit for China? Or if so, what are some of the real basics in your program you would want to make sure are on a solid foundation before you transferred your process to Asia? Yeah, good questions. So I, I think for early phase programs, clearly you know, they are the go-to um, place for very quick material um, that maybe doesn't need to be as high quality as you might need in a later stage uh, project. For a later stage project, I would feel much more comfortable if we had a well-worked out process that we had maybe developed elsewhere, but known of the impurity profiles, know the nors and the pars, and aren't really relying on these firms to do anything other than repeat what it was done, you know, given the, the procedures that they're given. I, I think the as long as that is kind of clear up front, you're going to be more successful on the back end. Again, learning from our mistakes, we thought we had a turnkey process, very quickly found out we did not. And that's when we were significantly out of pocket with the firm that we had contracted with. Um, and they just were not geared up for the development work that we needed on a 17-step process. That was very technically challenging every step of the way on a highly potent compound, which made it even more challenging. But Again, if you could have a process that maybe is worked out and handed over to them, I think they could be very successful with that. And one of the reasons you would want to be there is access to the Chinese market, right? Uh, it's much easier to do that if you're manufacturing internal in, in the country um, than externally. 
Um, so that's others, maybe something else to keep in mind with the projects, depending on where you want to market from. Yeah, those are really good points. Yeah, actually, I hadn't thought about that, but those are really good points. It just it just seems to me that, you know, we always say it's an, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And if, and if you really do understand your process, you know, and you go to make that commitment, it is a commitment. I mean, it's a commitment financially beyond that original proposal. If you make that commitment, you, you really should have a, a good, realistic handle on your program. Yes. And, pl- and plan to be fully involved the entire time. I think it's maybe a little bit easier in some other CMOs in other countries in the US or Europe to maybe not be as hands-on because maybe they're more mature uh, with their commercial processes and procedures. But I I think if you're planning on doing manufacturing in China, plan on being hands-on. Yeah. And it's a note for some of these smaller companies where they, they maybe don't have a CMC group and, and this is just another product in their portfolio. We, we've seen it time and time again, right, Dave, where, where clients have wholly invested support and, and trusting in the CMO. But to a CMO, in all fairness, you are one of the projects in their portfolio and, and, and understandably so. I mean, that's the CMO model. So this is a situation where it does require a presence. Um, and you can't balk at the price of an airline ticket because if you weigh that against the price of not getting your product available when you need it. That's right. And in uh, particularly important, I think, for a small organization because there is a hierarchy there and they do look at big pharma names versus other names they're not familiar with and they will react and, and treat the project accordingly. So in order to help yourself, you, you're going to need to invest some time to be on site to help your project be successful. Okay, this is good. Any anything else you want to share with us? Tell us, confide with us. <laughs> How about the the one f- practice that they have? That frankly, I'm jealous of. I wish we had it here in the states. I, I don't know if I've told either of you this, maybe, but I told you that they graduate a lot of of PhD chemists and others, right, across all their universities, and these are top notch uh, schools and top notch candidates. They have a very heavy recruiting process, you know, where they actually would shut our project down for a week while they go send their top VPs and project managers to the universities before they graduate those students to say, hey, here are the jobs we have for you. We would really like you to come to our firm. And what was described to me was just how aggressive that recruiting was because there were so many CMOs vying for the same pool of candidates that they had to find be creative with the ways that they enticed him to join the organization and i was remember being jealous about that because that was not the situation we have here in the states right where we have lots of phds and not all of them have you know maybe the job they are are looking for or wanting so i I just remember how different that was over there for them and like i said they they would shut down for a week it was almost like chinese new year right where they shut down and it goes quiet for a period of time Um, same thing for the recruiting cycle and it was a full week. It was a full week. Talk about commitment to getting the best people. Wow. That's right. That's right. And that's because the government has, has funded that many companies that need that many people to be employed. So it's a, it's a win-win for them, right? They are graduating a ton of PhDs and masters and everything else. And, and yet they have jobs also for them all lined up. It's fantastic. We haven't had that in, I don't know, 20 years maybe <laughs> in the States. Maybe more. <laughs> wow. Yeah. No kidding. That's. It's just. It seems at times like like a different world. But uh, but again, in the same way, similar. So I, I think over time, it's like you said. The last five years has been heavily influenced by the West, and um, you know, independent of 
you know, political landscape, you know, business is business. And, and there, there's an incentive for, you know, uh, Asian sites to, to become marketable and appealing to Western companies because they're always looking for that, that, that cost of goods advantage. And if China can offer it, then China will always be, you know, a value added proposition for somebody's program. Okay, Dave, thanks again. It was great. Uh, in short, I took some notes when dealing with Chinese CMOs, the person and plan approach is pretty important and establishing, maintaining really, you know, partnership relationships relies on understanding. It's first uh, step to trust, of course. And if you're doing business in Asia, plan to be hands-on, as you mentioned. So there's also a, an old Chinese proverb. I didn't plan this actually, but if you want to find out about the road ahead, then ask about it from those coming back. And I think you have a lot of experience doing that. So so on our next episode, we'll be talking with Ed Narkey, myself, of course, as well as Brian and Miranda. And uh, again, it's a guide uh, to CMC regulatory drug development pathway. We have a lot of resources on our website, blogs, and et cetera. And it's really about the importance of strategy and implementing things like that. Um, you know, how can you make your product get to market quicker and efficiently as possible? You know, good regulatory strategy. Um, just don't see a lot of it out there sometimes. Um, so with that, thanks again, everyone. And join us on our next podcast and see you then. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which include a summary, timestamps, and any links mentioned in this episode, please visit dsinformatics.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the information from this episode and any past episodes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash CMC live. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.